0: Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, what a privilege it is to be here this morning gathered as your church. And even as we mentioned earlier, in freedom to worship, to live, to make disciples. And yet, Father, may we not get confused that our first priority is in heaven. That our most important citizenship is in heaven. That we are most importantly ambassadors for Christ. And Father, even as you've just heard, may God shed his grace on America. may we have boldness to go forth in the freedom that we have and to make disciples. Even this morning, as we come to your word, as we look to John 5, to our great Savior, Jesus Christ, may you be lifted up. May all distractions fade away. May we focus in on the truth of your word. May your spirit work mightily through your word in each and every one of us. We pray that you would convict us, that you would change us for your glory this morning. Give me boldness and authority to proclaim the truth of your word with clarity. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Start with a spoiler alert, but if you haven't seen Star Wars by this point, that's on you. <laughs> one of the most famous movie lines in history is the line from Star Wars: "Luke, I am your father." What makes that line stand out so so much is that no one saw it coming, and it's a line that changes the entire story. Everything that had happened up to that point, you now go back and you look at it with that revelation with an entirely new viewpoint. It changes everything that happens after that. It is a paradigm-shifting quote. As we come to John 5, 1-18, we see a paradigm-shifting truth. Something that changes everything. And that truth is that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is equal with God. In fact, everything in this passage is leading to that point. I think you'll come to see as we work our way through here that John 5, 1 to 18, it's not about the lame man who is healed. It's not about the miracle. It's not about the controversy over the Sabbath. It is all leading up to... Jesus Christ and his identity. As we work our way through this passage, we'll see a great need. And we'll see a great controversy. And those two things together will set the stage for a great truth. The first thing we see is a great need. John 5 verses 1 to 9. We see here in the first nine verses is the stage being set. It's been a few weeks since we've been in John. If you remember last time we finished chapter 4, Jesus had moved from Samaria, where he was at the beginning of chapter 4, back into Galilee. He healed the official son, if you remember, from 20 miles away. and We talked about what that says about Jesus Christ. Come to chapter 5, it just starts after this. It's just moving the story along. We don't know how much time has passed. We don't know how much time Jesus spent in Galilee. We don't know everything that Jesus did in Galilee. It jumps from, from that, that, that one instance where Jesus heals the official son. Now, after this, after an undisclosed amount of time, there was a feast of the Jews. Again, there's not very much detail here. We don't know how much time it's been. We also don't know exactly what feast this is. But again, that's not the point of the passage. It really doesn't matter what feast this is. The whole point is that it's this feast, after this time, that moves Jesus and his disciples from Galilee back to Jerusalem. So that's where we find them at the beginning of chapter 5 here. Jesus went out to Jerusalem. Now, not only does it tell us where He is in Jerusalem, or that He's in Jerusalem, but where exactly He is in Jerusalem. Because there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, which is called, in Hebrew, Bethesda, having five porches. Where Jesus is in Jerusalem is He's on the northeast corner. He's north of the temple complex, through the sheep gate, at this pool, Bethesda. Bethesda, which means house of mercy, which is a fitting name, because it goes on to to tell us that in these porches around this pool lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the movement water here at Bethesda the house of mercy is a multitude of people looking for mercy looking to be made whole in fact it's here in the midst of this mountain of need that we find the great physician Jesus Christ and what's fascinating is that no one there has any idea in whose presence they are. Here's a great multitude of people with need. People that are are gathered around this pool in great number, a crowd, a great multitude. But their hope is in superstition. Their hope is that when the water moves, they can quickly get down there and that will heal them. Jesus Christ is standing right there in their midst. Mm -hmm. Verse 4 explains why this crowd is around this pool. Verse 4, however, is not included in the oldest manuscripts, in the most reliable manuscripts. In fact, if you have an ESV or an NIV, verse 4 is not there. Instead, there is a, a, a footnote explaining that. From everything I have read, it seems that most biblical scholars agree that verse 4 was not a part of the original text. It was more a scribal note explaining why the people are here. Now the note itself, verse 4, is not wrong, because it goes on later to explain that that's exactly what this man was hoping in. He says, I was hoping to get into the water first so that I could be healed, but no one's here to put me there. So what verse 4 says is not necessarily wrong, but it does not seem that it's a part of the original passage itself. But it does explain to us, help us to understand why this crowd is gathered around this pool. Every once in a while in this pool the water would be stirred and and they superstitiously believe that it's an angel that's moving this water and the first one in will be healed. And so they gather and they sit and they wait day after day for this water to be stirred so they can jump in, so they can be healed. So come to verse 5, it narrows in on a certain man, a particular man. There was a certain man there who had an infirmity 38 years. We don't know how old this man was, it doesn't tell us, but he's had this infirmity for 38 years. Later on in the passage, it seems to indicate not that he was born with this, but that this may actually be a result of his sin. Now we know that not all sickness, not all infirmity, not all trouble comes because of, as a result of sin, but some does. Some comes as a consequence of sin. And it seems clear, as we'll see later on, as Jesus is talking to him and Jesus says, go and sin no more because there's a greater consequence that maybe this is, his specific infirmity is a part of his is a result of his own sin. In fact, maybe that is why Jesus has picked this man out of this entire crowd. Because maybe he's the only one there whose sin is a res- whose, whose infirmity is a result of his sin and the physical consequence of his sin that he is facing, Jesus takes away. And Jesus warns him, You've, you've suffered a physical consequence. I've taken away that physical consequence. But if you don't turn from your sin, there's a greater consequence that is coming. That could be it. We, we don't know. I think a reading of the passage uh, seems to, to lead in that direction, but we don't know. All we know is that this man is there for 38 years, and for some reason, Jesus has picked him out over everybody else. It's not because of his faith. Because we come to find out this man doesn't even know who the man that healed him is. But Jesus saw him lying there. And Jesus knew him. This is not the first time in the book of John that we've seen Jesus knowing someone. No one had to tell Jesus, hey, that man right there, he's been here 38 years. Jesus saw him and Jesus knew as Jesus knew Nathaniel and saw him from a distance. As Jesus knew the woman at the well. So Jesus knows this man. He knows his need. Jesus knew that he'd already been in that condition a long time. And so Jesus says to him, do you want to be made well? It seems like an odd question at first, doesn't it? I don't know if you've ever been at a restaurant or someone where someone asks you a, a, an obvious question, right? You're sitting down and the waitress comes up and says, are y'all hungry? <laughs> no, we just thought we'd come and sit here at this table. <laughs> yes, I'm hungry. That's why I'm here. Do you want to be made well? Why do you think I'm here? But really, that's the right question to ask. Really, what Jesus is asking is, are you satisfied in the state that you find yourself, or do you want to be made whole? You see, some men are satisfied in their infirmity. Some men have simply given up, and they just don't care. Jesus didn't come to, to, as a genie to fulfill wishes. At the same time, Jesus didn't come to force people to believe. He didn't come to force people to be made well. Jesus came, as John 1 points out, for those who would receive him. Those who comprehended the depth of their darkness and the splendor of Christ's light. And so do you want to be made well? Are you satisfied or do you realize that what you're missing Do you want to be made whole? The man answers in verse 7. Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. When I am coming, when it does happen, another man steps in before me. In essence, he answers Jesus' question with this. That is what I want more than anything else. That is what I have dedicated my life to. For 38 years, I have come here day and day out, waiting for the water to stir. And every single time the water stirs, against all hope, against all odds, I start crawling my way towards that water, knowing that someone else is going to get there, and yet I don't give up because I'm going to get there, even if I don't get there first. All these years I've been waiting. All these years I've been striving for that. Imagine this man's helplessness. Imagine his, his longing for 38 years to be so close to what you think is the answer. And yet never being able to get it. Being so close and yet so far away. he, like everyone else, doesn't understand that standing in front of him is Jesus Christ. Standing in front of him is a man who has just healed someone from 20 miles away in Galilee. Standing in front of him is the Son of God. And the reality is, All that time, if, by some chance, if one time he had been first in that water, he would have found it not to be the answer. He would have found it to be lacking. He would have found that he has the same problem as he did before. Because getting in that pool first was not the answer. Jesus says to this man, this desperate man, rise, take up your bed and walk. Verse 8 to 9, we find here the miracle. Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. Immediately. In fact, notice the completeness of this miracle. Not only does the man have the ability to walk, but his legs have the strength to walk. His legs have the muscle memory after 38 years, not just to walk, but to carry his bed. Jesus has healed him, and he's healed him completely. He has made him whole. But in the end of verse 9, this passage takes a turn, a turn that you would not expect it to take. You'd expect at this time that this man comes back and and gives Jesus a big hug and says, who are you? And Jesus says, I'm the son of God, believe in me. And he says, I believe. And then he goes home and his whole family gets saved. That's not what happens. Verse 9 ends with this phrase, and that day was the Sabbath. It's a transition it's moving the passage forward. It moves from this man's great need to now a great controversy. And it's really at this point that this passage, in fact, in the book of John, transitions. Jesus' ministry is transitioning, and his opponents are moving from interest and skepticism about Jesus to outright opposition. Jesus just healed this man. And yet then it notes, and that day was the Sabbath. As you come to the next point, verses 10 to 16, a great controversy. The Jews, therefore, said to him, who was cured? It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. What an odd thing to say to a man who hasn't been able to walk for 38 years. Somehow, they've missed the entire point of what has just happened. Here is a man who could not walk just a moment ago, and now he's walking, and you're worried that he's walking on the Sabbath. I think it's important for us to take a, a pause here. Because in order to, to really grasp this passage, we need to understand a Jewish understanding of the Sabbath. You see, a lot of times when we view the law, when we view the Sabbath, we see it as a burden that the Jews had to carry. Something bad. But really, they viewed it as a delight. They were were told to rejoice in it. This is a good thing. It was a privilege. Sabbath rest was something that they looked forward to, something they prepared for, something they took seriously. Sabbath was demonstrated at creation as God rested. It was commanded of Israel at Sinai as they came out of Egypt. present celebration of communion as tonight we'll gather around the Lord's table and we'll look back at what God has done for us in Christ at the same time we'll look forward so Sabbath to them looked back to what God had done as God had brought them out of Egypt the rest that they had and it looked forward to a greater rest it was a joyful thing it was a good thing Looked forward to a rest, a rest of redemption. When all of God's promises had been fulfilled. However, in their enthusiasm, the rabbis had perverted the Sabbath. They had added 39 laws to it, and each of those had laws underneath them. 39 classes with, with laws underneath them. For instance, reaping. You could not reap. And then that was clarified under that. What that looked like plucking corn, picking beans, or whatever else they did. It was very specific. Because they were joyful about it. They want to keep this and they want to keep it rightly. And so, so if we're going to do that, we have to clarify what is work? What does that look like? But it turned from a joy to a burden. As you see here, this man has just been healed. This man's not breaking the Sabbath. He's not doing something, continuing his work that he would do the rest of the week on the Sabbath. In fact, he's not doing something he's done for 38 years. He's simply walking home. It's important for us to understand and keep that in mind because in just a second Jesus is going to make a statement. It's going to make a statement that ties into their Sabbath understanding. And so, so understand that. Follow along with me. Keep that in the back of your mind. So this man answers him. As, as they come to him, he realizes this is, he's, he's in trouble. This is a big deal. And so he passes it on to someone else. Well, it's not my fault. He made me well, said to me, take up your bed and walk. He's distancing himself, turning their focus to someone else. Well, who is this that's telling people to break the Sabbath? And so they ask him, well, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was. That's an astonishing confession. You don't know who it is who just healed you? who it is who just gave you the strength to walk after 38 years? You didn't turn around to say thank you to get that man's name? And even more important, this reveals to us that this man had no idea not just of Jesus' name, but of Jesus' identity as the Son of God. This man didn't grasp that I am a sinner and this man has salvation. He has what I really need. Goes on, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in the place. There again, I think there's something in there that, that, that should grab your attention. If there is a multitude in the place, and if a man who's been there 38 years gets healed, and there's a multitude of other people looking to get healed, you would think it would be easy to find Jesus then, right? They would all flock to him. so focused looking at the wrong thing that they didn't look to Jesus. Everyone was so focused on the water moving that they didn't see the man get healed right in their midst. And Jesus is able to withdraw, to slip away in the midst of people with needs. In fact, notice verse 14, it is Jesus who goes and finds the man. Afterwards, afterward Jesus found him in the temple. He said to him, See that you've been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. You've been made well. Sin no more. So I was talking about earlier when I said it seems to indicate that this man's situation may be a result of the sin in his life. The infirmity that he was facing may be a consequence of his sin. And if so, then Jesus has sought this man out taken away this physical consequence and mercy and called him to believe, to turn from his sin, to avoid the greater coming eternal consequence of that sin. This man completely misses. it goes over his head. The man is more concerned about the authorities that are after him than about Jesus who has just healed him. Because what does he do? He goes back to them. He goes back to them and says, Hey, that man that you asking for, it's Jesus. Go get him. Let me go. Get him. For this reason, because of what Jesus has done, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him. That is it. Big jump. They go from being bothered by Jesus, from being curious about Jesus. Now they're seeking to kill him. To kill him because he's healed someone on the the Sabbath. In their eyes, Jesus' blatant disregard for the Sabbath makes him an enemy. In fact, John wants us to understand that this is the reason. He says, for this reason the Jews persecuted and sought to kill Jesus... Because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Twice he nails that down to us. Twice he makes it clear. This is because of what Jesus had done and because it was done on the Sabbath. So as we come to to point three, we move from a great need to a great controversy which sets the stage then for this great truth. Jesus answers his accusers those who are trying to kill him, Jesus stands up and he says, my father has been working until now and I have been working. Mm. Or what does that mean? Really, that statement is unpacked over the rest of chapter 5, where Lord willing will be next week. In essence, what Jesus is saying is because God, my Father, is working, I too am working because I am equal to God. See, Jesus could have answered in any number of ways. Jesus could have challenged their overbearing, unnecessary, rabbinic additions to the law. But instead, he takes their own logic to make an explicit claim. You see, with all these laws and all this stuff that they had added to the law, it then brought up other questions. Does God work on the Sabbath? And if so, or if not, does that make him him a lawbreaker? The answer to question one is clearly yes. Yes. God does work on the Sabbath because the universe continues to function, meaning God is continuing to uphold it. He's still doing something. He's still active. And if God is active on the Sabbath, then is He a lawbreaker? There were several rabbis who who got together in later centuries to try to figure out this question. And the answer they came to was no and this was their reason because the universe is God's domain and because the universe is God's domain, God never leaves his domain, therefore God can work in his domain therefore God's not breaking the Sabbath he's not walking too far, he's not lifting something over his head, God can't do that so God can't break the Sabbath and what Jesus is doing here is he's jumping on that logic And he's claiming, your allowance for God's work to continue on the Sabbath is my allowance to work on the Sabbath. In essence, I am equal to God. In fact, this becomes a theme in Jesus' ministry. In the book, The Ministry of Christ by David Redding, he notes that over half of Jesus' New Testament patients are healed on the Sabbath. I don't think that's just because Jesus likes controversy, it's because Jesus is making a very clear point. Jesus is proclaiming His identity, not just in the miracle that He does, but when He does it, in the authority that He has to do it then. In fact, it becomes clear in verse 18 that they understood this. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill Him. Because He not only broke the Sabbath, but He also said that God was His Father, making Himself equal with God. They understand that in Jesus' answer here, what He's saying is, I am equal with God. They get the implication of what he's saying here. It could not be more clear to them. In the rest of chapter 5, Jesus goes on to unpack this even more. But this passage, these 18 verses scream the divinity of Jesus Christ. These 18 verses are not about the man who was healed. It's not even about the Sabbath controversy. It is a clear statement about the divinity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. And the great need and the great controversy set the stage for Jesus' declaration of this great truth. So as we come to the end of this passage the first point of application is belief. I would call you this morning to turn from your sin and turn to Christ. Don't become distracted like this man who got healed was. If you have never placed your faith in Christ alone for salvation do it this morning. Recognize that you are a sinner and that your sins separate you from God and that your greatest need is not any infirmity that you may have. Your greatest need is to be saved from your sin. And God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. The whole point of John is that you might believe He's been bringing forth witness after witness after witness to open your eyes to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. So turn to Him and believe and be saved. That's your greatest need. And this morning, if you've never done that, I would call you this morning to believe. Mm -hmm. Secondly, To those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, who have believed, who have been saved from the consequences of our sin. I would call you to look to Jesus, the answer. I would ask you, what are you longing after? What are you straining for? Because there is one who satisfies, and it's Jesus Christ. Are you, like these people who are gathered around this well, this, this pool, looking to be saved, what they think is their greatest need, waiting, hoping, and superstition? Is that you? Or are you trusting in God? Do you realize that your greatest need is right here? This is where the answers are. I think it's especially pertinent in, in this Climate in which we find ourselves, even on this day. Your greatest need cannot be met by a politician. Your greatest need cannot be met by whoever wins the election, by some news source, by some genius debater. Jesus Christ is the answer. He's the answer to what ails our nation. He's the answer to what every person in this world needs. If more people know that you're a political conservative, than know that you're a Christian, you might be focusing on the wrong thing. If more people know your stance on political issues, you might be focusing on the wrong thing. The answer to everything is right here in the Word of God. The answer to race relations in America is in the Word of God. The answer to a pandemic, it's in the Word of God. Because our greatest need is salvation this book points us to a savior. Turn from your sins and be saved. Believer, point others to the answer. Don't get distracted. Don't be pulled off track. Stay focused. I think it's one of the things, it's just a small mention in this passage, one of the things that stood out greatest to me was the fact that Jesus heals a man in the midst of untold need and yet no one else notices it because they are all focused on the wrong place when the answer is standing right in their midst. Let us not be like that. Because the answer is right here in our midst.